This week on Squats and Margaritas, it's Rebecca Ayer, CEO of Project Heal, an organization very close to my heart. Um, as many of you know, I dealt with all types of eating disorders and stumbled upon Project Heal when I was looking for an organization to make donations to, to make my book and my brand mean something more. Um, I reached out to them. A portion of my book sales at my launch event, as well as my merchandise on my website, all go to Project Heal to help fund eating disorder treatment and recovery. And I'm lucky enough to speak with their CEO today about why certain people are affected more than others with eating disorders, what are some of the stereotypes around it, how people that love you, friends, family members can support someone with an eating disorder when it's such a secretive shameful thing that the person's dealing with. Um, we're going to talk about it all. I am so thrilled to be able to welcome Rebecca Ayer, CEO of Project Heal. Hello. Hello. How are you? Doing all right. How are you? I'm well. I'm, um, you know, in a pandemic with two toddlers, as well as one could be <laughs> in yeah. that scenario. I can't yeah, imagine how much more complicated that would be. And, uh, how your nervous system is handling it all. How are you doing? It's not fair, um, first of all. And they're just, they're not independent. Like I have one still in pull-ups. So it's like, he needs me. And I'm obviously doing my show from home and they see me and it's like, they want to come in. And it's like, I feel like I'm always like, no, 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 mommy's working. I'm hoping it's just going to be a few more weeks of this, but like, who knows? Right. I'm just doing what I can for now. And just Someday they'll be back in school and it'll be so much easier and we'll put this all behind us. Yeah. Um, but just talking about the pandemic, like it makes me think about when I was struggling with my eating disorders, how isolating that is and yeah. how that has to be affecting the people that are isolated now. Your secrets thrive in isolation. And have you seen like a big uptick in people needing your services now that we're all stuck at home? Yeah, we have. We've seen a huge increase um, 100% of our applicants are impacted directly by COVID-19. And I think that's in a couple of different ways. One is some folks have reported dramatically increased eating disorder behaviors and symptoms. Some folks have reported new eating disorder onset um, this year in the context of the pandemic um, and stay-at-home orders. Some people who have been in recovery for many years have relapsed. So we've got increased eating disorder incidents we also have um, a lot of folks reporting job loss, insurance loss. And so essentially the problem that we're trying to solve at Project Heal, which is barriers to eating disorder treatment access, has just kind of doubled in size, right? You have more and worse eating disorders and much more barriers to care, more financial and more healthcare barriers. So this is a super challenging time for the eating disorder community. And to be honest, uh, I'm, I'm struggling so much with my own mental health and overstimulation. And, you know, this is a very, very difficult time, I think, for, for the world and for America. Um, but what gets me out of bed in the morning and keeps me going as far as my work is thinking about those beneficiaries and imagining going through this while also going through an eating disorder and not being able to access the care that you need. So it's very motivating to me to show up for them um, right now when they need us the most. Um, and unless I'm thinking about it like that, I just get way too in my own head about how hard things are for exactly. me. <laughs> of course. 
but they're not nearly as hard for me as they are for, for people who have lost their jobs and whose eating disorders are raging out of control and they can't access care. So, um, you know, I think that that perspective of like putting your energy inward of like the people who are the most affected need us the most right now. And like, we are all affected, but some people relative to others are less affected. And we really need to show up for the people at the center of this who are the most affected right now. And everyone needs to do that, not just Project Heal. It's, it's tricky to figure out who is in your direct circle of influence, whether it's a family member or colleagues or people that you're serving and through your work, who it is that needs your energy and attention right now, because God knows our energy and our attention is really limited. Yes, and um, I, actually I was going through the process, I don't know if you know, to become a mentor, for Project Heal. And I'd done like, I think like three interviews and then it halted because all of your efforts when this pandemic hit had to go to the people that you're helping now. And it was like all hands on deck. And I'm hoping at some point to be able to do that again. I wanted to give you um, some background on how I even came across you guys. I, um, I struggled with eating disorders for multiple, we can get into that later, but over a decade mm-hmm. and it was nobody knew. And mm-hmm. when I finally found balance, my squats and margaritas brand, not restricting, not being so obsessive. You can Mm -hmm. have a cocktail, you can work out. It doesn't have to be seven days a week, just living your life with balance. Mm -hmm. I healed and it wasn't until much later in life. So I was never going to disclose my eating disorders. I was going to the grave with my eating disorders, like telling myself, like, thankfully I got through it and nobody knew about it. And then in writing this book, I had a writing coach the book was a guide for women to live with balance. And she's like, why would anybody listen to you? You don't have any credibility. And I was like, oh, trust me. I was not living with balance for a long time, but I still wouldn't talk about it. And Mm -hmm. she's like, you need to write your story. And I fought her on it. And it was like, one day I wrote it. I didn't even tell anybody else. It was just written and it was out and I was lighter. And it felt Mm -hmm. so good to just say it. Um, All the eating disorders that I dealt with and when I wrote this book, I had a uh, big book release party at Kendra Scott, like a jewelry designer. And they were like, we will donate a portion of the sales to the charity of your choice. So I, I have to be completely honest. I'm looking online and Project Heal stood out to me because it was discreet. Mm-hmm. And had I been saying like, come to my book party, a portion of the sales will go to eating disorder organization. Everybody would be like, huh, what? Because my book hadn't come out yet and mm-hmm. nobody knew until they read it. So I, that's how Project Heal like caught my attention. It was discreet. Yeah. And then I, I knew it was supposed to catch my attention. I saw what you guys were doing and what you're doing for people like funding eating disorder recovery and treatment. And it made this like a bigger thing. And now I have merchandise and a portion of my sales goes to Project Heal. I would love to be a mentor. And when I got this podcast, I said, I'm going to do an episode with you guys to first shed light on what you're doing and to just talk about it because eating disorders are so, for me, it was like shameful. I'd never would talk about it, but once it came out in my book, I share it with everyone. And I've had so many people reach out to me and say, you're the only person that I've told that I had an eating disorder. And now I feel like a responsibility to do an episode like this for somebody that's watching that maybe isn't out with their eating disorder yet, or maybe feels like they're recovered, like you said, and is feeling a relapse urge because of the pandemic, that you and I could just have an honest conversation, obviously about what Project Heal does. And I also wanted you to share what brought you to be involved in the first place, because I just, I assumed wrongly that you had an eating disorder, but that wasn't the case. 
Yeah. Well, so many things I want to respond to. I think one thing that I want to say is just, you know, congratulations on your courage to share your story. And it makes a really, really huge difference for people. And I know that you're seeing the fruits of that now with people's responses to it, but I think I'm thinking of a, um, an educator that I admire a lot, Jenea Future Khan. And one of the things they say is our secrets make an island out of us. Yes. I think that's so real. It's, it's so true for eating disorders and it's way worse now, right? With how isolated we all are. Um, and so it's so important to talk um, about what's going on with us. And I think once you start talking about it, you start realizing how common it is, yes. how many people are affected. And this is why, you know, a common statistic is that 30 million Americans struggle with eating disorders. And when I hear stories like yours and I hear stories about the people who are telling you and have never told anyone, it's very obvious to me that that number is really low. And when right. I think about, right, I know a dozen people off the top of my head who have had an eating disorder or, or do right now and haven't talked to their doctor and have not been formally diagnosed. So they're not being counted in that 30. Million. Right. So how big is this problem really? I think it is much bigger than anyone, any statistics show. Um, so just thank you for adding your voice to that conversation and driving awareness and for supporting Project Heal uh, with pleasure. your with your merch and everything. It means a lot. Every dollar counts. Um, in terms of, um, oh, another thing I wanted to say about the importance of sharing your story is that so many people struggle with this thing their whole life, right? It, it's, a, it's in the background um, of of every moment, it's constantly kind of taking up space in their brain and whether or not they talk about it. And so I think another thing is that a lot of times in recovery communities, there aren't kind of examples of, I had this thing and now I have healed. Yes. Here is, it's not necessarily like, here's my solution for you. Cause I think everyone's recovery is different because everyone's eating disorder is different the underlying issues in every person's eating disorder are different, but like just seeing a human being who has found freedom from this thing that keeps them in prison is so powerful because without any information about that, it, without an example of that, without a, a person to look to, to see, okay, this thing I'm fighting for is actually possible. People really get, I think, discouraged and overwhelmed and they sort of accept it as something that they'll have to live with the rest of their lives um, and that they might die from and they, they fully like come to accept that. And I think that's terrifying. So without the examples of people who have recovered, you know, I think there'd be really intense hopelessness. And so thank you for being one of sure. those people. I want to say really quick that you just made me think of it. If, if you would have told me that I would start a wellness brand, helping women live their best lives when I was like hovering over a toilet for 10 years before I went to bed every night. I had, I never, again, I never thought I would share it. I would never think that this would be my purpose. I was sick for so long. And I, I know now if anybody's feeling hopeless and they're not going to get through it, I went through it to find my purpose. And had I not struggled, my um, writing coach was right. I wouldn't have the credibility to talk to people like, I get it. I was there. Mm -hmm. I never thought I would come out of it. You can, and you can find balance. And that was why I had to put this book out there for the person that is feeling that way. Mm -hmm. um, did you have someone in your family or a friend that, that brought you into yeah. the eating disorder world? Yeah. So that's, it's, it's so interesting. I talk with my sister about this all the time. Um, like how in the world did I get into this work if I didn't personally have an eating disorder? I think it's, it's a little bit of a complicated journey, but 
the biggest thing is that my mother has anorexia and has had it my whole life. And so I grew up very, very much around it. And then my sister developed bulimia and, you know, my best friend in college had an eating disorder, a severe eating disorder. And so in many ways, like I've just been around eating disorders my entire life. And, um, you know, most of my exposure in those early years was with people who had not gone to treatment and had not recovered. And so I felt, um, you know, let me, I, I felt discouraged overall about eating disorders. And, and when I went to mass, my master's program and, and um, got my counseling degree to be a therapist, in the back of my head, I was just like, I'll work with any population except for eating disorders. Cause I really only had hard experiences uh, with them. And I thought it would be personally triggering for me in terms of like why I didn't develop an eating disorder. And then I'll come back to sort of what yeah. happened with my career. Um, I have no idea. I have every risk factor. I have control issues. List them. Yes, I need the risk. I have, <laughs> and I'll put my finger up. <laughs> I have yep. trauma. I have genetics. I have, yeah. um, I have so many things that. Are you first born? Um, I'm, I'm, was your sister I'm like a displaced? I'm like, a, I'm, I was the oldest, uh, for many years. And then I had a half sister who moved in when I was around 10 years old and I didn't. So I like temperamentally am the oldest, but I'm technically have an older half sister, your sister, but in your household. So that yeah. I feel like that, I don't know. I was going to ask you too about the perfectionist firstborn, that was me. I was mm -hmm. the only one. I have three younger sisters. None of them dealt with any of that except me and my, I was so like type A perfectionist. And I was wondering if your sister that developed bulimia, if she was firstborn, but no. No, she's okay. the youngest. But you have the genetics um, from your mom. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I think we had really different relationships with my mom and received different messages about our bodies from our mom. And so I think that, and there were other, I think, predisposing factors in each of our lives. I also went to boarding school um, for most of my teenage years. So I kind of got out of the house, which really helped <laughs> to be completely yeah. honest. Yeah. Uh, and she unfortunately did not. So she was around my mom for many more years. And I think was more affected by, by being around that. So um, I think I have a couple protective factors, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways I was always stubbornly, um, intuitive with my eating and sort of refused eating disorder mentality because I was so rebellious against my mom. Yeah. Uh, makes sense. So, <laughs> totally. <laughs> she's in the kitchen measuring her food and like leveling yeah. off measuring cups for yeah. things. Just like, I hate everything about that. I will never yeah. do anything like that. And so I think it was in some ways helpful. <laughs> it was a rebellion. Um, yeah. So in terms of then going back, so I'm in my master's program and I'm saying, I don't want to work with eating disorders. And I ended up at this um, job fair. Um, this was 10 years ago now where we had, we were trying to get our internship and I talked to every booth except for the eating disorder <laughs> treatment center. Right. And then at the very last minute, I talked to the eating disorder treatment center and I was like, this just is probably too close to home for me. I don't think that I could do this, but what do you think about this? And in the course of the conversation, it became clear that I had a really deep understanding of what eating disorders were really about, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't have any of those misconceptions of like, this is a vanity issue. This is about food. Like it's just not. And so I knew that in my body, I knew that in my heart. And so I think I noticed that I had a really deep intuitive understanding of eating disorders as the complex social, biological, um, and 
psychological diseases that they are. And Mm -hmm. then I went to an interview and anyway, I ended up taking this internship kind of reluctantly. And what I found was so exciting that every person at that treatment center was in treatment. They all wanted to recover. They all had a fundamental, like, I can admit that this is a problem and I want to do something about it. And so I had never known anyone in my life to go to treatment or to want to go to treatment. And so I had this, like, in some ways it became this way, I think, for me to work through my issues with my loved ones who had struggled and not recovered um, to say, oh, this is something that can be healed. And it Mm -hmm. gave me hope and it healed something for me about this thing that felt so dark um, that actually healing was possible and became really a, a huge personal passion line. And over the course of the years, um, working at an eating disorder treatment center, being a private practice therapist, I not only became, I think, really informed about why eating disorders happen and how people recover from them, but I also became troubled by how many people can't access the care that they need, how many people are turned away, how many people's insurance doesn't cover it, how often insurance denies ongoing care, and basically how the treatment system um, and our healthcare system is a tremendous barrier to people recovering. So um, do you see how there's sort of this narrative of like, there's some people who are sick and never get care because they don't want it. And then there are people who do get care and can recover. And then there are people who want to recover so desperately and can't because their their insurance doesn't work for them. And or they can't afford it. And that became the thing. Oh yeah. Your passion. I fell into a different one of the, I I did want to stop so badly, but I could not admit it. I would Mm -hmm. never go to treatment because then it was like, everybody would know. And everybody knew. Like when I wrote the book, I had to like, I was like, I have to sit sit down with my mom. And she was like, you don't understand. I was seeing a therapist like to deal with you. I didn't know how to talk to you. And I knew you were struggling and I, I felt so helpless. It was the hardest time in my life. I know it was like, like alcohol and anonymous, they have Al-Anon for like the people like AA has Al-Anon. I didn't know if project heal had something like that. We can get into it later for people like family members. Cause she was like, you, I never would have admit, I can't even believe it's been like 15 years that I have been recovered. And obviously it's always with you, but I think if this was five years ago, I still would, I still wouldn't admit it. Like I had to get so far removed for, from it that I would even begin to talk about it. So mm-hmm. I was in a category that I wanted help, but I would never admit it. And I was wondering, did your, do your mom and sister, like it, were they admitting that they had a problem where they be like, everything's fine or. I can't remember whether my mom admitted it. I think on a certain level, it was a little bit of a point of pride for her. Like she. She's so skinny. Yeah. It's. Mm sad. Um, but my sister definitely knew and she's fully recovered now, which I'm really amazing. So, uh, sometimes it takes years to get to the place where all of the things line up, right. Where your motivation and your resources and your, uh, life circumstances, uh, allow you to be able to kind of get to that tipping point, uh, where change can happen. So I just want to say to everyone, like, number one, there's nothing to be ashamed of. If you're struggling with food, um, or you're consumed with food thoughts and body thoughts, like you're not alone. You're actually not even close to a a small number of folks and, um, you know, never give up because I think there's, it can feel like a years long battle and it often is. And that doesn't mean it's 
futile to try. Um, and I've seen people go into treatment, you know, two times, five times, 10 times, and it wow. becomes incredibly frustrating to have to continue to deal with it. And then I see, I have seen some of those folks, like whatever the reason is, it clicks one day. And they, they get to a point where that last hook, you know, loosens and, and they find freedom. And so it's really, really worthwhile. And like the life that a person can have post uh, an eating disorder is like that much richer um, and that much freer and the same sensitivity that makes someone more likely to develop an eating disorder, that sensitivity can be channeled to like incredibly beautiful life transforming community, you know, work and service to others through your pain and you're (laughs) struggling through something that is a, it's a mental illness. Like it's not something that you should, there's, you should feel shame for, which I always did because it was so, I always just thought it was like, it's so gross. I don't want somebody to know I'm throwing up my food. Like you would know, you don't want somebody to look at you like that. So that was like the shame for me. Um, But if you look at it, like this is a mental illness, just like anything else that you wouldn't have shame for like, well, it's not my fault. I have this. And people don't look at eating disorders like that. It's just like, why are you doing that? But mm-hmm. like you said, it is all consuming. It's all you think about my mm-hmm. eating disorders evolved. And I don't know if that's something yes. that's typical. It started with anorexia. Like I ended up playing division one soccer in college and that soccer was my obsessive thing. Like I just, how I did in soccer was the only thing that mattered. And I wanted to be skinny and in shape for soccer, soccer, soccer. And I didn't realize how obsessive I was until I was writing my book. But in high school, I just went, when I got my period super late. And so I gained weight, like my sophomore year in high school mm-hmm. and I wanted to lose it. So I stopped eating and I didn't think, it, I, I knew it was a problem, but I would never admit it. But when it equated to a soccer problem where my coach was like, your crosses aren't strong anymore. You're losing so much strength in your legs. I was like, whoa, like, but not, whoa, I'm going to eat. It was like, I'm going to show him that mm-hmm. I'm going to be skinny and I'm still going to work harder. I lost more weight. I don't, I wish I remembered everything about it. I don't know what made me decide to start eating again, but my anorexia evolved into exercise bulimia where mm-hmm. I would take note cards and write down every calorie count of everything I ate. Like I remember shredded lettuce was five and I would count them all up and like the 300 calories that I'd allow myself, then I'd go on the elliptical and I'd work off 300 calories. So it was canceled out. And I did that for so long. Like I would work out in my basement, the exact amount of calories. So I was eating, I could be like, I'm eating, I'm eating, but I was working it off. And then that was like what I was doing through college or into college. And then when I got to college and I wasn't seeing a lot of playing time and I was working so hard, I quit my sophomore year. And my identity as a soccer player, which I had been my whole life. That's all I cared about was gone. And mm-hmm. I was like, who am I now? Um, I don't know what, to, like, I didn't know what to do with myself. My, I lived in the soccer house. The girls would like go to games and I'm just sitting there. I lost my identity. And that is when the bulimia started. I started, it was, I guess it was something I could control. Um, it was so secretive and I, it took up my whole day. That's all I would think about is like binges and I hid it from everyone. And it was like, that was my new obsession. Like soccer was gone in that identity. And then Mm -hmm. bulimia fell onto my plate. And for 10 years, I struggled Mm -hmm. with it. And the more I talked to people, when I I talked to Maria Kang, like this great fitness trainer, she's such a like motivational mom. And I had her coming on talking about like balancing motherhood. And she just casually was like, well, back when I was younger, I was bulimic. And she started talking. I was like, whoa, 
like, go, go back. I had no idea. And she's like, yeah. And she just talked about it. And she's like, I didn't know I lost my job. I stopped dating my boyfriend. She's like, I didn't know who I was anymore. And so I kept going identity. When you lose your identity or you have kind of like that time in your life where you don't really know what's next or what to do. It, is that a typical time when people develop eating disorders, when they lose something, maybe like a divorce or I don't know, like for me, I was not playing my sport anymore and just kind of losing themselves that an eating disorder, they're more susceptible to an eating disorder at that time? Yeah. I mean, I think that an, uh, the research is clear that most eating disorders onset in adolescence or young adulthood. And I think that is a really formative time in terms of identity development. So when you're talking about, you know, using your eating disorder in some ways unconsciously as a solution to your identity crisis with losing soccer, I think makes a ton of sense. Um, and always there's some kind of, you know, precipitating factor, like many, many people have predisposing, you know, uh, factors, right? Like, or, or, things about them that make them more vulnerable than others that might, that could kind of become an, an eating disorder, um, depending on the right context. And, but some people say, don't get them. So yeah. why, how are more, well, I think that so interestingly, and I haven't actually shared this before, which you seem to have that effect on people, um, <laughs> is that I, you know, I was an eating disorder therapist and then I was going through a divorce and the only time in my life I've ever actually used eating disorder behaviors was post-divorce. Um, and I lost a lot of weight and because, but, but it never, I don't say that it's an eating disorder for a couple of reasons. One is that I was able to pull myself out of it within a few months without care. And yeah. to me, if it's a few months and it's, you know, following a major loss or grief and you're able to do it on your own through sheer willpower, I don't think that's a full eating disorder because people with eating disorders know for a fact that sheer willpower <laughs> does and, and a yeah. few months is not how an eating disorder goes. Mm -hmm. But I did know the experience of becoming weirdly preoccupied with my food, um, being malnourished. And then I had to refeed myself. I had to eat a lot of food in short periods of time to refeed and to gain weight. And in order, and I did that because I needed to it was like ethically my imperative as an okay. eating therapist. I was going to say, yeah. what was the aha moment? Like, I'm going to fix this. I'm not doing this anymore. It was that your like your integrity to your profession. <laughs> it was yeah. my integrity. And it was really, it was as simple as like, I, I would have met criteria for tr the treatment that I was providing. Yeah. And I'm just like, that's not okay. So I either need to get this under control or I need, to, and I shouldn't say under control. I either need to. Yeah change directions, uh, really sharply, or I need to like, think about whether I can do this job right now. And I, I think if I hadn't been able to pull myself out, I would have respectfully left my job and figured out what I should do in the meantime. And I would have, you know, worked on healing myself. And I feel really, really grateful and fortunate that it didn't become, and it wasn't harder for me, but like, you have to remember at this point, I had three or four years of eating disorder knowledge, like as a provider. So I knew what to do. I knew what a meal plan looked like. I knew how to, you know, what the tools were. I gave people these tools. So I just gave them to myself. Mm -hmm. You put yourself <laughs> and, through your own practice. And yeah. And again, many people, I, you know, providers struggle sometimes too, and not everyone who struggles can just do that. And that's why I don't say I had an eating right. disorder because, because I was able to give those to myself and I was able to do them. And that to me, like, if you can, within a few months, 
regulate yourself and get back to your set weight, like that's an, that's, that to me feels like I was, I had a lot of grief and loss of appetite is a, is a common grief response. And so, um, yes. And everyone who, you know, goes through a major loss or a trauma or something that triggers maybe a dysregulated relationship with food or with body, like don't let it, don't let it run rampant, like check yourself right, and reset as soon as possible so that it doesn't become a thing. I think some people give themselves a little bit of wiggle room, like, oh, well, this is a really hard time. So I should, I'm allowed to sort of do this or I'll dabble in this for a little while. And then they end up with this thing that they can't. Then they end up with little note cards, writing down all the calories of things. 10 years later, exactly. Yes. They're like, how did this thing become my whole life? And I think, um, so as soon as you know what's yeah. going on, do everything you can. And, you know, that will look really different for some people. Um, but in my case, gratefully, I had uh, the resources I needed to get myself back on track and I, and I've been fine since then. I almost feel like that was supposed to happen. And now you can almost like more properly empathize with the people you're talking to. Like, cause I would feel just honestly, like if I was talking to you, it'd be like, and you say, I've never actually struggled with an eating disorder. I'd just be like, well, you don't understand. Mm-hmm. But now you have that knowledge to be like, I do. And obviously your sister and your best friend yeah. from college, your mom, but you do have that little bit of life experience to be like, I, I get it. And that would almost make me feel safer. Like how people message mm-hmm. me, like I feel safe enough to talk to you because you, you had it too. And people mm-hmm. feel less alone when they're talking to someone that has gone through it. I think that gives you credibility and more mm-hmm. empathy. And I don't think that, I mean- yeah, I don't think it was an eating disorder either, but you can relate a little I more. I definitely had ex- d- extremely disordered eating yeah. at the time. And you had an identity change, like a divorce. I mean, that's a huge, yeah. like, I, I feel so, it's so trivial that like, I didn't have soccer anymore, but if you understand how obsessive I was about soccer and I played since I was four and I wrote a journey, we had to do a journey project in high school. And it was like, where do you see yourself in the next five years, 25 years? Everything was like, it didn't matter I have, I hope to have a successful college soccer career. And my, I always just equate it to like firstborn because my three younger sisters all played soccer in college. Nobody was dealing with anything like that. And I feel like they always looked the same. They never gained, let I me mean, they would gain some weight, but like I would either be super, super skinny or 20 pounds heavier. And that's another thing that if people that aren't familiar with bulimia, I was the heaviest I ever was when I was bulimic. Mm-hmm. And I recently found out, I was talking to a nutritionist and she said, you're also, when you purge, you're also purging nutrients and all the good things your body needs. And you throw your hormones so out of whack. Like I was just a puffy version mm-hmm. of myself. Like you mm-hmm. people think, oh, you were bulimic. Oh my gosh, you're probably so skinny. No, no. I was way heavier when yeah. I was bulimic. Well, and everybody's bodies respond differently to different things, but there's no question that, you know, when you put food in your mouth, your body gets prepared to metabolize it. And then when it never reaches your stomach uh, and it never reaches your digestive tract, your body has created a ton of acids to, to digest the food. And, you know, your metabolism starts to distrust you, right? I think that the eating disorder behaviors on a lot of levels are are ruptures in trust with your body. Um, you know, your body depends on you to nourish it. And when you inconsistently nourish yourself um, or give and then take away or whatever the case may be, 
your body starts to say, I don't know if I'm going to get my needs met. And it's right. very like, it's very common, not, it's not across the board because everybody, everybody's eating disorders kind of take a different course. But a lot of times the body actually becomes way more likely to cling to every single calorie it gets. Yes. Uh, yes. Not necessarily the nutrients, but like, I mean, I need energy. Your body, your brain alone, just to operate your organs needs around a thousand calories a day. Wow. So you're, it's you're a function. Talking- and when you, when you see some of these diets and weight loss plans, they're oftentimes recommending calories at yes. or below that. And that means that you're literally like, eat, your body is eating itself alive in order to continue to operate your brain and your pump your heart and, you know, fill and empty your lungs and digest, you know, it's all of the organs are affected. And so uh, in a lot of ways, the things that people do to try to either take care of their own emotions, feel a sense of control, or to change the appearance of their body end up wreaking havoc on not only their physical body, but like their relationship with their body in a way that takes a really, really long time to repair. It takes time for your body to trust that you're going to give it what it needs again. And that's why eating disorder recovery is a complicated nonlinear process is that yes. just because you start doing the things that you quote unquote should do, right? Maybe you start following your meal plan and you stop purging and you, you know, you're like doing really well and it's been two weeks and your body is just like, I still don't trust you. And so it's yeah. and you feel like it's not working. You're not healed and, and you're, you're constipated yeah. and you know, yeah. all of these systems working. just take a really long time to regulate. And some of our systems don't, fully recover. And I think um, there is a really important research published about the biggest loser and how it, that extreme uh, weight loss regimen that they were on for however many weeks permanently damaged their metabolisms. And so um, there's that there's also like osteopenia and osteoporosis are irreversible. And there's some heart issues that can be irreversible and some reproductive issues that can be irreversible. And so it's like, this is not all recoverable, your life is recoverable, but there are some things that really like long-term and dental issues persist for decades after eating issues. And so really thinking about like, if you're, if you're doing this for health and if thin, if thinness equals health to you, like your equation is off. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that's why it's so, so important in the recovery community to really dispel the value of thinness as something to pursue and like to stop equating health with weight yes. and, and to understand that you can actually be healthy at every size. Because if you have a baseline belief that if you are at a higher weight than you were previously, then you are less healthy. If that, if that is a one-to-one for you, you're not going to get free of this thing. It really, really requires you to set aside appearance and the number on the scale and really ask yourself, am I listening to my body's needs? Am I meeting my body's needs? Uh, and that doesn't have to be visible at all for me to know that it's true. Yeah. You know, some of the healthiest people that I've met are people who are in large bodies, they're strong, they're nourished, and they're doing all of these things and they receive a ton of really ugly um, Yeah 
bias and horrible abuse from people on the street, people at the gym, people, uh, the systems that build our clothes, like all of these biases that say, that's not the body you should have. And I think, and that's not healthy. And that's, I think one of the core problems that the, one of the core ways in which our culture supports and fuels eating disorder mentality, it's just not true. It's not scientific. It's not based in science. It's just not true. And so we have to do something about that so that when we're doing these behaviors and our brain and all of our predisposing, right? Like if, if you develop an eating disorder, but you aren't, you know, festering in a cesspool of diet culture, right? You're, people will still have eating disorders, but at least the culture around them isn't telling them a bunch of stuff that is agreeing with this mental illness, right? Yes. Like let's build a culture that counters eating disorder thoughts rather than one that supports it. Yes. And Rebecca, it scares me so much because I know that it's genetic and my firstborn is my daughter. So I'm like, mm -hmm. oh God. So I watch everything I say in front of her. I think about social media and stuff that was not around when I was struggling, like and what she's going to have to see and just how like on Instagram, like every, everybody, the people with the most followers just put a picture of them in their bathing suit. And it's like, that's, they're not giving any content. And it's like, that is what, that's what she's going to see is like, this is what you're supposed to be. This is what I do feel like there is a shift to like big is beautiful recently with some of the people like the curvier, like I'm thinking of like Lizzo, like the Kardashians figure. It's not like a stick thin, which I wanted to be for so long. And what's funny is how your perception changes of what you're striving for. Like, I wanted to be real thin growing up, no butt. I didn't want anything. And now like it's like, I'm pumps. in the gym. Yes. I'm in the gym, hip thrusting and squats, just trying to build my butt. And it's just so funny how it shifted what I, what image and like what physical attributes I want to have now. I want a butt. I want to be strong. I don't want to be real thin and it changes. So like, even if you're what I was struggling with before, like you, if you're feeling like you can't get out of it, you may not even, it's, it's not, like you said, that's thin, being thin is not, doesn't mean you're healthy. It's not like the main goal. You may, that may not even be something that you're striving to achieve when you get older. And yeah, I'm 39 now. And I, it sounds, it's easier to say than do, but I just figured this out. Mm -hmm. And I think what you were talking to about like the mindfulness, like I forgot what it was like to feel like full. And I was so used to just starving when I was growing up with like anorexia. And I thought I was being healthy because I'd be like, I do cardio seven days a week. I only eat salads. And like you said, my body was starving. It was holding on to every, I couldn't lose weight. And I'm like, I'm barely eating. And I um, do my cardio every day. And a trainer at my gym was like, you just need to eat more. And to tell someone that has struggled so long with eating disorder, oh, just eat more. I never would equate eating more with like turning on my metabolism and losing weight again, but that's what I wrote in my book. When I started eating, when I was hungry, being mindful, just stopping because of all the times of purging and like all the years of that, I, the fullness, I was so, I never thought about stopping when I was, I, mm -hmm. I screwed up my metabolism so much that I just, I had no mindfulness and he said, eat more. And it was so hard for me to grasp that being, having been anorexic, like eat more and lose weight. I lost 20 pounds and now I am, I have muscle and I, I'm not thin, like I'm strong and I'm healthy and I eat so much more than I did when I was um, struggling and 20 pounds heavier. So the shift to like nourish your body, I eat healthy, but I eat all the time. And I think about, I like lost my twenties, my whole twenties. I was so obsessed with like calorie counting and I was heavier 
But now I'm just mindful. I, I give my body what it needs. Like you said, like your body needs to trust that you're going to give it food. You're going to give it water. I don't work out seven days a week and I'm not so obsessive about it. And it was like, my body just kind of started working for me again. Like, mm-hmm. I guess it trusted me as you're describing it. Mm-hmm. And for so many years, it was like, what is happening? Like, what are you, what are we doing? And now it's, it's almost easier, but it, it did. It was a process to trust you can eat, eat when you're hungry, just be mindful and when you're done, like I, I'll order a meal now, like I'll get what I want. Fish tacos is on the menu. It's happening, but they're going to bring me three. And before I would never order fish tacos, like I wouldn't even look at it. And so I'd feel deprived. I had my salad and I wasn't losing weight and I was just sad. Now I get the fish tacos. I eat one and I'm, I'm fine. I got what I wanted. I'm not feeling like I'm deprived. So I'm not going to just go binge later. I'm not full because I didn't, you don't need to eat all of them. And then I'll take them home. And a few hours later, if I'm hungry, I'll have another one. So you're not feeling deprived. You're not overeating. It's just this lifestyle of balance that I live now that I found so late in life that I had to share it with somebody that Mm -hmm. is feeling like they can never get out of it and never live with balance again. Because I feel like you have to allow yourself those little indulgences. For me, it's like a margarita. Because if you don't and you're restricting, at some point, you're going to have that thing, that the wine, the, a cookie or something. And before I'd be like, oh, I had a cookie. So now I have to eat all the cookies and a pint of ice cream and get rid of it. But if you just live with balance and know you can have something, you can have that indulgence. You also worked out today you, and not, you don't go overboard and you never quit because uh, it's not like a diet. It's just a lifestyle of balance. Mm-hmm. And that is what my whole brand was about. Instead of all of the intense like obsession and restriction and deprivation, if you want something, have it, don't overindulge, and then don't feel guilty um, and live your life sad that like you broke your diet. Like it's just a balanced lifestyle that I feel like is the goal that mm-hmm. you want to find trying to come out of. Um, eating disorders. Well, and if I can just add, I mean, there's a lot of things that you're saying that if I were in a different context, I might yeah. challenge you on. Like, please, no, please. But I think that some of what you're saying, like what I hear you saying is that you found something that really works for you. And I think correct. Uh, one of the things that is important for me to say to anyone listening, um, yes, Uh, from Project Heal's kind of vantage point is that um, even if you find balance and you stop living out of deprivation and you stop living out of scarcity and you learn to listen to your body and that might mean you still eat three tacos just as an FYI. Oh, true. Yeah. uh, True. uh, If you want three tacos and that's what your body wants, like, please eat three tacos. Totally. Um, So there's that. And it's also like a lot of people who do regulate their like they start recognizing their hunger cues and recognizing their satiety cues, never have that uh, weight loss that results from that. Wow. So when you say like, oh, if you just do this, then that's actually the way to do it. I think it's really important to say many people with a history of eating disorders not only never lose the weight, but they actually need to live at a higher set weight in order to guard their mental health. And I think when, you know, dietitians promise weight loss as a result from intuitive eating, it can become a trap for people who's, who's at the end of the day, then they're just using it for the same goal, even if it's a better, healthier. I see. So I'm using intuitive eating to control my weight. 
if that's what you're doing, I had, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what you're doing, but no, I, think- I mean, I guess I would say I, I, I do yeah. like, I eat intuitively to be, to maintain, like, I'm not trying to lose weight and I know that I won't binge. And maybe at the beginning there was a, a, a very happy, like you you know, your eating disorder and thin, um, you know, what basically I don't mean to be harsh, but like your fat phobia was sort of satisfied. Oh, that's, during- you talk, say what <laughs> you're not going to harsh me. I want to know what is the right, like, this is exactly what we need to be talking about. Okay. So at the beginning, when I started living with balance, mm-hmm. it was for a different reason. Well, maybe your motive was to lose weight through intuitive eating, or maybe your motive uh, was just to try to find balance and you had the happy, um, you know, comp side, you side know, effect. effect of losing weight, which is what you had been wanting all along. And I guess I just want to say that for anyone listening to this, who has an eating disorder, who's thinking about intuitive eating, know that if you're doing it in order to lose weight, you're very likely to fail just statistically. And if, and if that's one of the goals you're looking for, or if there's like a fat phobic, the more you, you hold on to a fat phobic mentality, then the more that you'll become frustrated or disenchanted with different things that like, so I guess I would just say, instead of like, I love the idea of listening to your body and balancing. It's a very, very huge part of recovery, but I would just say at the same time. And I I agree also, you're saying like sort of decriminalize foods, you know, no foods are bad food and there's room for all things and your all foods fit. Those are amazing things. But I would say that in order to fully recover from an eating disorder, there has to be some underlying work done about dismantling your fat phobia. Because as long as you're terrified, as long as you would see weight gain as a negative, and as long as you see weight loss as a positive, then you are remaining very vulnerable to relapse. And I wondered, I never got treatment. Mm -hmm. I, I wrote in my book, like I struggled with the anorexia, exercise, bulimia, bulimia. Then mm-hmm. I haven't been bulimic. I think I stopped around probably 24, 25, a good 14 years. But then I, I write that I was doing it the right way. Like I wanted, I was heavier than I wanted to be. So I guess I had the fat phobia. And mm-hmm. I thought starve, just calorie, don't eat. Mm-hmm. And I want people that are not eating and thinking that like they shouldn't eat food. Your body is starving. And in order to make my body run efficiently, I started eating often. I started, you know, I eat nutritious foods, but I eat so much more. And that now I'm in a healthy body. I don't have the frustration. Mm-hmm. I'm not just doing cardio all the time and trying to like burn off all these calories and be thin. Like that didn't, mm-hmm. it didn't give me any results anyway. And I guess me saying results, is, <laughs> I like where I, I got it. <laughs> I hear myself. And I have to be honest, like I, I got this book review. Um, when my book came out, it was like, a lot of people gave me five stars and was like, oh my gosh, this is giving me hope. One was two and it was an eating disorder therapist. And it's probably exactly what you're saying. And it said that I had no business talking about eating disorder recovery if I'm not a professional. And I ended mm-hmm. up responding and I said, I don't want this mm-hmm. book to be how you re- recover for an eating disorder. This is my story. And it's how I live with balance now, encouraging mm-hmm. people to women that are like frustrated that they're not losing weight and just on the cardio machines strength training changed my life, eating more and lifting weights. And I feel like that's such a, 
a shift from what women are taught when people think mm-hmm. count your calories, barely eat and do cardio. My book was like, my body changed and I got healthy again. My metabolism started working um, when I started eating more. It's just to tell my story because I wanted mm-hmm. to have a little credibility. Like I struggled, now I live with balance. And, but it's, I was so angry, uh, honestly, about that review. And I was like, two stars. And like, this woman has no right talking about it. But you're saying, because I'm still using words, means that I am still in it. What, what it is, is it's like, I, I'm sure your lifestyle is workable and very, like, very much improved. Like, I would say probably you are recovered from your eating disorder behaviorally. Like that's how eating disorders are measured our behaviors and, 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 and thoughts. And you're saying I'm not preoccupied with food. I don't have rigid food rules and I nourish my body and my weight is stable. Like that's a recovered person and don't let anyone take that away from you. What I will say is that I think some of the underlying beliefs Mm -hmm. haven't yet. Okay. I hear that. Yeah. I hear it when I talk now. (laughs) The cool news is that you get to write a second edition or you get to write a second book. You get to learn more. And like never, I I think it's dangerous to say, I only get to talk about my story once it's over. Like, what are you talking about? You know, I think there's more of work to do. And it's really exciting to think about how your own thinking about this could evolve as you you know, reckon with some of those underlying beliefs and say like, what if I did all of these changes and I hadn't lost the weight, would I still feel okay? No, and I think I wouldn't. And that's <laughs> the problem. And that's yes, why right. if someone is reading your book or looking at your blog and, and a big fan of yours, if they do everything you say and they actually gain weight, that is going to make them feel betrayed. And that's sure, no, of course. It feel like any anything, any lifestyle change that says, I believe your body will change and become thinner because you're doing it. It's the thinner that I need to get away from. It's the thinner is yes. better is a, is a thing. And I actually have a really important book recommendation for you. Are you ready? Yes, ready. I'm reading this right now and I'm so obsessed with it. Oh my gosh. What we don't talk about when we talk about fat by Aubrey Gordon. It just came out. I literally pre-ordered it. I'm halfway through it. I think it's one of the most comprehensive, mind-blowing, accessible, thorough um, summaries of why Western society, America, specifically uh, women, like how our basically diet culture, fat phobia, why do we feel this way? how do we dismantle it? How do we create freedom for people who have all different kinds of body sizes? And how do we see eating disorders as one of the ways that people are trying to cope in a, in a society that tells us that fat is bad. Yeah. And our society tells us that fat is bad every day, 10 times a day through a million different ways, whether it's the size of our furniture, the size of our clothes in our stores, or whether it's, um, you know, even like the size of medical equipment, uh, let alone representation in media. Um, and there's a million different ways in which our society has very clearly, I mean, even medical doctors talk about it. And the, the really important thing to know is that our culture's fat phobia has nothing to do with health or weight yeah. uh, or, or, or science, I should say. It has nothing to do with health or science. So when we talk about 
what it does, what it, what it takes to, to lose those extra, you know, five or 20 pounds, whatever yeah. the case may be. Maybe it worked for me. That's the wrong question. Yeah. actually. Yeah. You shouldn't be working, thinking about the weight loss. Yes, yes, exactly. I think I just, I want I, I say, I write it for the woman who's working out and not seeing results. And again, mm-hmm. results being fat loss. I just living my life so restrictively. That was what I was equating with the eating disorder. Obviously when I was writing everything down, but like I would always just go to the salads. I was like, you can't eat what you want to eat. You have to work out seven days a week. And it was so obsessive. I stopped being obsessive. And yeah. I guess it was just like a fun bonus that I had the weight loss. I need to watch that because I never want to give off that. Mm-hmm. I'm still giving the, what you want to do to be, to lose weight, not to be healthy. And even if that's how I feel, I'm not putting that out there. I, I got I that extra benefit. That shouldn't be the result I'm going for. It's just like a happy yeah. side effect that happened to, have, happened to have happened when I started living a more healthy lifestyle and not restricting and over-exercising. Yeah. And I think that what I would say is like, I, I believe that you're like, Hey, I want, like, I believe that balance is key to my health and it's probably a key to yours too. Like, I think that your heart is in the right place. Yeah. I think that, um, you are a statistical anomaly that balance automatically led you to this thing that didn't require you to challenge your fat phobia. And there will be people who are reading this, who, find balance and start making healthier decisions and stop becoming obsessive and, and all of those things. And they won't have that consequence and they will be forced to reckon with their fat phobia. And I would just say that in order for you to truly embody the thing, I think you really want and mean, uh, with regard to like helping people find freedom and helping people find balance, it's going to be about accounting for the fact that that is not going to be, it's not a helpful outcome for everyone. It's not going to be a consequence for most people. And so anyway, I'm no, I'm so glad I need to know that. Do. Like, I'm so glad. And maybe there is a second revised, <laughs> we should yeah. stay in touch. Um, yeah. cause I don't want that to be the message. Cause I don't look at myself. I don't want to be skinny. I want to have a button. I want to be strong now. Like that shifted. And for so long it was like skinny was the goal, but now I don't look at it like that anymore. Well, and what's interesting is like beauty constructs, uh, what you said earlier, you're like, it's amazing how it changes. I wanted to look like Kate Moss and now I kind of want to look like, you know, uh, a Kardashian or whatever. Right, right. And what I just want to point out there is like, let's zoom out and say, okay, so if beauty ideals can change, then that means they're made up. True. And that means they're a social construct. And what that means for people is that if your body is in fashion right now, in 10 years, the beauty ideal could change. And then overnight, your body isn't what you want it to be anymore. And I yeah. think that becomes really, really scary to attach ourselves to the beauty ideals of the moment. And just never forget that the beauty and weight loss industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. And they make money off of people failing at this at achieving this ideal. And that's why it changes all the time. And that's because if it, if it wasn't a moving target, how could they possibly continue to profit off of our inability to meet it? Yeah. And so, right. You know, think about who's making money from your, (laughs) yes. uh, Right. Exactly. And and it's subjective. Like it's what's beautiful to somebody else. Like you could be exactly what somebody is looking for. And just finding that that's enough. I found self-love. I finally am like, I just had, I had no, like 
I just had such a negative image of myself. And now like, I love myself. And I, I said for my whole twenties, I hated myself. Like I was just like, I didn't like what I saw in the mm -hmm. mirror. I just am happier now. And I'm at peace mm -hmm. and I respect my body and I found self-love. And it doesn't matter what anybody thinks about that, like about me, it's what you think and how you feel. And, and, and the other thing goes like, I was homecoming queen, I was prom queen. I had all these things and people would be like, oh, you did this and congratulations and you're beautiful. It didn't matter what people thought. It was how I saw myself. And mm -hmm. if I looked in the mirror and I felt I wasn't in my best body, I'm not gonna say skinny. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> like I finally, now I feel that way. And it doesn't matter mm -hmm. if somebody makes a comment on Instagram. Like I don't, I, I'm okay with myself finally. I found self-love through balance. It may not happen for everyone mm -hmm. um, living with balance. Yeah. And the, and the asterisk I want to add to that is like, um, how do you bring that deeper and deeper and deeper? Because as you age and, you know, like all kinds of things can happen, right? Our, our bodies age or like, God forbid something happened and you couldn't work out anymore and your body just naturally changed. Right. Sure. Or God forbid, you know, something happened to you or someone that you loved and you had, um, you lost your ability to right. eat the way you do now and move the way you do. Like, how can that self-love and that balance and that self-acceptance and the fact that you happen to have achieved your own ideal at, the, at this moment. And, and because that. the truth is that no one will stay at their ideal for the rest of their lives because time is a, an, is a reality and death is an inevitability. And therefore like, right. that's just not, you know, so how do we hold on to like the heart of what you're talking about, which is this idea of balance and self-love and um, yes. like kind of rejecting a scarcity mindset um, Yes. in a way that sort of has nothing to do with whether or not we've achieved our own beauty ideals. Um, exactly. So I'm excited to see where you go with this. I know. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm already, a blog is already happening. I wanted to talk more specifically about Project Heal. And mm -hmm. I had to ask this question, like for my mom, like if somebody's listening to this and they may not be struggling mm -hmm. with eating an eating disorder, but they have seen the signs in someone they love, what do you say to someone who doesn't know how to approach, like my mom didn't know how to approach it with me because the person feels shame and would, isn't admitting it. Like how to talk to someone that is dealing with someone in their life struggling with an eating disorder? Um, well, first and foremost, uh, there is an, a great resource. You asked this earlier. It's an organization called Feast um, and their website is feast-ed.org. And they're an eating disorder organization specifically for family members, loved ones, and caretakers of people who have eating disorders. So if someone that you love has an eating disorder, they have so many amazing resources on there. And I think that's like the go-to place I send folks. Um, in terms of people listening, the, the one answer I'll give for now is like, um, I don't think it's a bad idea to say something. And when you say something, just simply say what you've observed. Um, you know, you don't have to make assumptions about what the things you've observed mean, right? You don't say like, I think you have an eating disorder. Exactly. Don't diagnose them. <laughs> you have no idea, but you can say, hey, I've noticed you leaving the table after meals. I noticed that you're really tired lately. I notice that you feel really distant and like, I can't seem to sort of place you. And I, I feel like, 
I'm, I see pain behind your eyes, you know, whatever the case may be, like just describe what you've observed that's worrying you and just say that you're worried and that you're there if they want to talk about it. Um, and so I think it's really about only naming the things that, you know, you have a, any kind of place to say, cause they're your own experience. And then second is really like, not imposing your conclusions on anyone, but allowing them to know that you're someone that they can talk to if and when they're ready. Um, obviously, if it gets really, really severe and you're genuinely like, this person needs a, an intervention, there's yeah. different things I would say. Um, but, um, you know, the worst thing that can happen is that someone is anxious to say something, you know, doesn't want to cause waves, is feels yeah. conflict avoidant, and then their loved one dies yeah. uh, because they never said anything. And it's important to know that eating disorders um, take the life of someone, at least one person every 52 minutes in the US alone. And so oh my God. this is not something to um, dismiss yeah. as like harmless enough or, you know, will go away on its own. It's actually really dangerous. And so better to have tried, right? Yeah, um, and not have and, regret. And not, and to have, yeah, to not have regret and, you know, better to fumble, right? Sure, to say, say something and not know exactly what to say than to not say anything at all because you are too worried about doing everything perfectly. And I think that's, right, the perfectionism is part mm -hmm. of an eating disorder and it's also part of the reason people avoid talking to people with eating disorders. And it's like, let's just throw perfectionism away because it just doesn't exist. Yes. We just have to do the best we can with the resources that we have. And maybe that's like their aha moment. Like, whoa, I didn't realize it was that bad. People are noticing and that could cause them to go and get help. And a lot of people say like, oh, I, you know, no one ever said anything to me. And I think yes. there's, there's sort of an, an, an like, yes, people want to hide it. And at the same time, a lot of times people yeah. wish that someone noticed yeah, uh, yeah. that they were hurting. And so saying something can oftentimes feel like love, even if initially they're defensive. Exactly. If this episode resonated with someone and they are interested in getting help, how does somebody reach out to Project Heal and what can they expect? Like what happens when, when they're with you? Yeah. So we actually are primarily, uh, or sorry, exclusively focused on treatment access right now. So we used to have the communities of healing program with the mentors and the support groups. And we've actually transitioned that uh, program over to another organization called ANID. So you can go to their website at anad.org. They have support groups and peer mentors. And so I would encourage people who are looking for peer support uh, to go to ANID. In terms of Project HEAL, uh, we are breaking down systemic healthcare and financial barriers to eating disorder treatment. So for people who have eating disorders and don't know where to start with their treatment or can't seem to get into treatment, they keep getting rejected or they can't afford it or whatever else, like go to our website, apply for support. Uh, you fill out a series of forms and then we can either help you get your insurance to cover it and advocate on your behalf. We can provide free treatment uh, with local providers in your area, or we can provide one-time cash assistance. Um, wow. And uh, for anyone who is listening and maybe don't fall into any of those categories, but they want to help, you know, yes. we're a nonprofit and we uh, are completely donation and volunteer fueled. And so uh, you can go to theprojectheal.org 
Um, so there's a T-H-E at the beginning of that, project.org, and, um, and donate, explore our website. There's a lot of really good information about like, what do you mean? What systemic barriers are there? Uh, what are the healthcare barriers? What, what are the financial barriers? And there's unfortunately um, only 20% of people with eating disorders who have actually been diagnosed actually access treatment. Mm. And uh, there are really overwhelming barriers, actually. It's incredibly expensive. The vast majority of insurances have limits on what they will cover despite laws that require them to cover it. And um, there are a lot of systemic barriers that stem from some of the biases that we see everywhere and that are at the forefront of American conversation right now. Um, there's a lot of inherent racism, um, cis heteronormativity, and um, weight stigma in the eating disorder community as well that really prevents people from um, BIPOC communities, LGBTQ plus communities, and large body communities from getting the care that they need. And so those are primarily the folks that we're serving. So if you care about people who are marginalized um, and excluded from the systems um, that are in place in this world and care about eating disorders, uh, please support Project Heal. Uh, we really yes. it. I will continue. I always make a donation on my birthday and then yeah. I partner with Kendra Scott. Kendra gives back. And anytime I do an event with them, she do- donates 20% of her sales to Project Heal. And then I will continue to donate my merchandise, mm-hmm. a portion of that sale. No, I'm so, thank you for being so real and not like tiptoeing with me. I've <laughs> learned, so I hope everyone learned, but I have learned so much. <laughs> I'm contemplating a second book. Um, I'm probably fired from the mentorship program because of my language that I use, (laughs) but I would love to, like you said, when someone talks to somebody else who has been through it and came out on the other end and doesn't do that anymore, Mm -hmm. I would love to be that for someone else. That is like, I cannot stop thinking about it. And I write in my book, I would be, it would be a snowstorm and I'd be like a drug addict out getting my fix. Like I would go to wherever I could buy all the processed things that I could binge and purge on in a snowstorm. And at that moment, I shouldn't be like, what are you? what am I doing? Like Mm -hmm. I'm out trying to get these things, but it takes over your life. And if I could just help anybody else to not live like that anymore, um, that's what I want to do. And I feel like I went through that so that I could have this voice and I appreciate your time so much. This is going to help so many people. Um, Thank you. Rebecca Ayer, the most incredible mind opening episode that I've ever had. Um, I'm going to say it. I, I, I still am living with an eating disorder. My language that I use, I'm still in it. Like thinking about what's going to get me in my best body and not gaining weight. And even though I'm not practicing those behaviors anymore, I'm not bulimic. I'm not anorexic. I eat all the time. I am doing it to stay in shape, to stay with the ideal body that I'm looking for. And that's something that I need to address. If I am giving that message to you, please know that I am living a healthy life now and I'm not abusing my body and I happen to get a weight loss benefit from living my life with balance. It's not going to be for everyone. It's not the way to do it. Rebecca Ayer, you are a phenomenal human being. Thank you for the work you're doing. Please, please make a donation at theprojectheal.org. Marginalized communities, people that cannot afford treatment or their insurance is denying them treatment, Project Heal will advocate for them. And if you know someone that you feel like is struggling with an eating disorder, you're not really sure how to talk to them about it, go to feast, F-E-A-S-T, 
ed.org and it's support uh, for people that are trying to support others that are dealing with eating disorders. If you're dealing with an eating disorder yourself, go to anad.org. They offer support and peer mentorships for people that have been through it. People like me that came out on the other side and you can have an honest conversation with. They can help you and support you right now. Again, theprojectheal.org for any donations. And thank you so much for listening to this important episode. If you haven't subscribed to the Squats and Margaritas podcast, um, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Podcast One. Please, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. And I will see you next week for a brand new episode of Squats and Margaritas. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.